0: if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark 14 again today, 53 through 65. But I want to start by asking you this question. Can you imagine putting God on trial? Can you imagine putting God on the judgment seat? You are the judge. He is the defendant. You're determining if he is right or if he is wrong or or what the verdict is. Can you imagine being judge over the creator and sustainer of the universe. I bet you if every one of us tried really hard, well, maybe we don't have to try that hard at all. Um, I, I think we all um, are a little guilty of perhaps acting like a judge over God at times when in, in our minds, right? We don't have to use too much imagination to do this. People love to do it. When things aren't going our way, when, when things aren't uh, following the script, that we have written when things feel out of control, that's when people tend to become a little judgmental towards God, determine if he's doing things right or, or doing what he ought to be doing and how, how intervening in the way that we think he should be intervening. Sometimes when things don't play out in our life really well, we tend to tend to want to shift the blame onto God. Well, if you'd pull up if you'd pull your, your share of the weight, Lord, this wouldn't be a problem. Right? Or, or we try to gaslight God and convince him that he's actually guilty. This is, this is a problem because of you. You have a hand in this. This is, this is how people tend to, to talk to God or feel about God when things aren't panning out the way they want them to. Or when God's not behaving in a certain way that we think he should. People have the audacity to think that they can tell God like it is. They're going to sit God down and, and give him a talking to, straighten him out. You know, that sounds a little extreme, but people literally do this. I was just speaking to uh, someone in ministry this past week who was sharing with me a story about someone in their congregation that they were trying to minister to. And they were talking about one specific aspect of God that isn't relevant necessarily to this, uh, this story. They were talking about a particular aspect of God that this individual did not like. And, and this truth centered around how God... Uh, interacts with us, and, and and how we're how we're told this and taught this in Scripture. This person didn't like like it that way, and, and and objected to what they were studying in Scripture, and said, No, 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 no. God and I have come to an agreement. We've come to an we've come to an understanding, as if to say, I actually talked to God regarding this issue. And I told him, listen, this may be how you interact with everybody else on the planet earth, that may be how it is with you and everybody else, but that's not how it's going to be between you and I, understand? They had the audacity to to present it in this way, like they were judged over God, they were going to inform God as to how he would be interacting with them. I mean, that's not only just completely asinine, it's blasphemy it's disrespectful, it's, irre- it's, it's irreverent towards God, right? I mean, what kind of radically low view of God does it even take to ever think that we have the moral high ground or, or we, we sit in a place of righteousness above him that we can tell him how he should be doing things, right? It's, it's just a crazy thing to think that we would ever even come close to being in that frame of mind you know, the the passage that we're studying today, this is exactly what we see. This is what makes it so incredibly outrageous. We are studying today some of the first trials that Jesus goes through before his crucifixion. Now, don't miss the irony here of this entire event. I'm just going to tell you right out the gate. Don't miss the irony here. Jesus is uh, in a trial before the high priest today, before what we'll, we'll get into the Sanhedrin basically a bunch of sinful and fallen men are putting Jesus on trial and the charge that they have against him is blasphemy that's ironic right don't miss the irony they're 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 claiming that he is being disrespectful towards god in a blasphemous way and of course that makes them guilty of the most blasphemous thing that's ever been done in the history of mankind that's the irony that we can't miss right here it doesn't get any more blasphemous than the than the chief priests, right? No, no other situation in the history of mankind has, has has this blasphemy comes come through so clearly than right here. These men have been trying to thwart Jesus' ministry for years. They've been plotting to kill Jesus for years. They finally figure out how they're going to pull it off. They dupe Judas into helping them in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Now they're going to put Jesus on trial in the middle of the night. In the, in the darkness of night, they're going to hold court. They're going to hold a trial uh, over, uh, with, with Jesus. I mean, you know, it sounds shady, right? And it literally is. <laughs> it's done in the dark. So where we left off last week, Judas, he betrays Jesus with that kiss, that betrayal that just twisted the knife, right? And we see Peter try to intervene, take on a whole crowd, uh, a, a mob with, with swords and clubs. He's going to attack, attack them, and, and uh, he cuts off a guy's ear. Jesus heals the man's ear. His name is Malchus. We even, we're even told his name in John. And, and he stops Peter, rebukes Peter. And then you got some random naked guy running around, and I'm not going to explain all that again. You can go back and listen to that. And now Jesus is taken under guard to stand before the leaders of this nation uh, of, uh, of Israel. And so let's pick up in Mark chapter 14. Let's just get going so we can understand this moment, and just the, the significance of it and what it means for you and I. 53 and 54 say this, And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Okay, so they led Jesus to the high priest. They're taking him after the arrest and betrayal of Jesus to stand before the Sanhedrin. So these, the, the high priest that's about to question Jesus here, there's something happens in between, uh, the, uh, in between this moment and his arrest that we're not told in Mark. So what's a little confusing, when you're reading all four of the Gospels, right, and that's what we're supposed to do to get the fullest picture of everything that's happening, you need to read all of these accounts in each Gospel because we get all of these different details. And what we're told in the Gospel of John is that he's taken before a chief priest before he gets to, I'm sorry, he's taken before a high priest before he's taken to the high priest. And that's a little confusing because if you know anything about the Sanhedrin and and, and how these, high priest's function. There's only ever one high priest, but it's confusing because two different high priests are spoken of in the Gospels, and if, and if you notice something like that, why is that the case? So here's what's happening. There really is technically only one high priest, and usually when you were the high priest, you were the high priest until you died, but at this particular point in time, there were two high priests, kind of. So Caiaphas, who is mentioned in, in, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, and Caiaphas is the technical high priest. But when, when you're reading in John's account, he's taken first to Annas, who is also regarded as a high priest. So here's what's, here's what's taking place. Annas was the high priest that the Jews had in place. He was the dude that was in control and, and led the Sanhedrin. And, and he, he was seen as like, you know, that was, they would have looked at him like the president or something like that. Like, this is our leader. This is the high priest that is in supreme charge over the worship at the temple. So Annas was their guy. But he wasn't very compliant when it came to Rome. And remember, Rome's ultimately the one in charge. And so Rome, they got a little tired of Annas. And they basically stepped in and said, you know what? You're not the high priest anymore. If we're going to let you guys have this worship experience and things like that, we're not dealing with this guy. He's out. So they got rid of Annas, and they put, Annas had a, a son-in-law named Caiaphas, and they're like, you know what? He's a little more pliable. We can we can actually manipulate this guy. He's more compliant. We're going to put him in charge. So Rome put Caiaphas in charge as the high priest. The Jews hated the fact that Rome intervened in, in their business. Are you kidding me? So, so the, the Jews would be like, well, okay, Caiaphas is the high priest, but Annas is the legitimate high priest. And so Annas still had his hands in everything and likely would have orchestrated a lot of what's going on. Some of the scholars may put it to you this way. If you really want to understand the climate of what was happening, it's helpful to think of Caiaphas as like the mayor and Annas is the mob boss pulling all the strings, you know, behind the curtain. That's Annas. And so Annas, you know what, if you're going to if you're going to try to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night in a really shady way and and not even have like uh, official charges against him and can't really figure out what it is that he did wrong. If you're going to do something shady like that you're not going to stop at the mayor's office first. You're going to go to the mob boss first. And when you read in John, this is your homework text, John chapter 18, 19 through 24, you get to see that first interaction between Jesus and a high priest. And This is Annas first. And he says it says that Annas questions Jesus about his disciples and questions him about his teaching. And Jesus' response to Annas sounds real familiar. It's the same thing, similar to what he said when he was arrested. He says, hey, I've openly spoken to the world. I have always taught in synagogues in the temple where the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. So anytime Jesus is confronted like this, hey, what are you teaching people? What are you up to? Jesus' response is, listen, I'm not doing anything in secret here. You've been listening to me teach at the temple. You've heard what I teach. I teach in public places, like on the Mount of Olives. You know, I I go to places where people are aware of where I'm at and everyone's invited. There's no secret meetings taking place anywhere. If you want to know what I'm teaching, just ask the people or show up when I teach. Well, they don't like this response, and you can even, you can even sense this, this mob boss type moment in the very next thing that happens in John's Gospel. It says, when Jesus responds to Annas like this, it says, One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? You See, they were, they were putting Jesus on trial, giving him a talking to. Things weren't panning out the way they wanted to. Things fell out of control, and they were taking back that control. They're going to put Jesus on trial. You're not the judge. We are the judge. We'll determine what direction this goes, Jesus. We're going to control this situation, not you. We're going to come to an understanding on our terms, not yours. That's how they're approaching Jesus. So then we're told, that's, it's after that moment, Jesus has already been roughed up a little bit. He's taken to Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin. Now, you hear me reference the Sanhedrin all the time. It's probably helpful for me to define what that what that ruling council is. That Sanhedrin would have been made up of all of these religious rulers. The, the chief priests, the scribes, the uh, and the elders. It would have been a combination of that uh, group known as the Sadducees, primarily dominated by the Sadducees at that point in time, but also the Pharisees, which they were like a almost kind of like a different denomination if I guess if you want to think of it in those terms even though that was not the terms in which they thought of it but he had this ruling council made up of all of these religious divisions and leaders in the in the in the, in the nation of, of Israel and there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin plus one that was the high priest so if there was any type of tie-breaking vote it would, be, it would be made by the high priest. And Sanhedrin, that's just a word that means assembly. It means sitting together, literally. So it's just an assembly. This is the assembly and the, of the decision makers. And so here they are assembling in the middle of the night, willing to, to arrive in this shady-like way. Are all 70 members there? We can't say for sure, but at least enough to make a quorum because they're holding this trial. So uh, they're here. And then we're told this other detail that we're going to get into the next time we gather, more so. But Peter, did you notice that? Peter was lurking in the shadows at a distance, trying to see what's happening here. Is that Peter or what? I mean, the experience that Peter has had in this moment, like ready to take, ready to die, he should be dead right now. Jesus just saved his life by rebuking him and and healing the man's ear that, that Peter tried to kill. Remember, he, he cut off his ear because he missed his face. He was trying to kill the man. Jesus just saved Peter's life. And now Peter had to run away from the Roman soldiers and the, and the temple officers to even survive that moment and not be arrested with Jesus. And now, after running away, Peter double backs undercover, lurking nearby. I mean, only Peter would do something like this, right? And he, and he's, he's keeping a distance and he's just staying close enough to try to hope To know what's happening, to stay in the know, observing things nearby. Let's continue in 55 through 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony, this, their testimony did not agree. So many, many uh, facts within this text teach us that what the Sanhedrin is doing at this point in time is really, really uh, shady, right? Sketchy, really sketchy. But we can look outside of the text and and even look into the the culture and see the rules in which they live by, and we find a whole bunch more information that's helpful for us to know just how low they're willing to stoop to arrest and execute Jesus in the dark. When you look and study uh, the the rules of the court of law with the Sanhedrin, and you read in the commentaries and study what the scholars have discovered about this moment, moment in time, here are some of the rules that the Sanhedrin agreed to do court by, and I'm going to, I want to mention five of them to you, and you see how shady uh, you think this moment is. Rule number one: No trials were allowed on the eve of the, of Sabbath or during festivals. Uh-oh! Right off the bat, by their own rules that they have in place, this is an illegal trial. They weren't allowed to have any sort of trial on the eve of the Sabbath or during a festival. Of course, this is the Passover festival, right? Rule number two, capital cases could not be tried at night. Alright, if we're going to talk about a death sentence here, you're not allowed to have that type of trial at night. And here, here they are in the middle of the night. They're breaking two laws. This is illegal. Rule number three, capital cases require two separate days in order to come to a sentence. And so, in other words you would have one day, you're supposed to have that trial in the daytime, in which you would consider all of the facts, hear all of the testimony, but not come to any conclusion. And then the judge and and the the ruling council, they were required to go home and sleep on it, and they were required to fast. And so they came back the next day in the day and complete this trial. And only then could they carry out a death sentence, as they wanted to do here. So that's breaking a third rule of theirs. Here's a fourth rule. The witnesses would be strongly warned not to lie. All kinds of people are lining up to, to uh, uh, bear false witness against Jesus, and they're probably being paid to do so, willing to, willing to testify uh, falsely against Jesus due to peer pressure from the Sanhedrin themselves. But they normally They would be strongly warned not to ever lie in court. As a matter of fact, if you did, and that day, the way things worked with the Sanhedrin, if you falsely accused someone and then it was discovered that what you were saying was a lie, you would get the punishment that they would have gotten had they been found guilty based on what you said. Oh, that kind of changes things, doesn't it? You better be careful who you make an accusation against. Because if they're found not guilty and and you're found to be a liar, you get the punishment they would have gotten. So that's a pretty significant change, uh, a pretty significant difference to how things work now and here, right? Here's the fifth thing. A blasphemy charge, which, spoiler alert, that's ultimately what they're going to try to pin on Jesus. A blasphemy charge could only be made if the defendant pronounced the divine name of God and cursed it. So the divine name of God, I am. Remember, that comes from Exodus when, G- when Moses is talking to God in the burning bush. Who shall I say sent me? I am. That's where we get the divine name of God, Yahweh. And so if you were going to formally charge someone with blasphemy and sentence them to death, they had to pronounce the divine name of God and they had to curse the divine name of God. And so there's... Five of their rules that they are breaking in order to carry out this trial against Jesus. That's how low, that's how desperately wicked they had become in this moment. How, how desperate they are to, to find Jesus guilty and to execute him. This entire trial is illegal based on their own terms. They weren't interested in examining the facts at all. When it came to this trial, they weren't wanting to examine the facts to, to see whether or not he was guilty. They, they, they had already predetermined that he was guilty. Now they just needed the facts or testimony to, to solidify this death sentence that they were after. So when they were seeking testimony against Jesus, there was, there was problems here. Mark mentions them. Seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They found no legitimate testimony, and I'll tell you why. It says, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So, one more law, and and this one is in the Old Testament. They had really, really, couldn't get around this one. If you were going to accuse someone and they were going to be found guilty, you you needed the testimony of at least two people. If you didn't have at least the testimony of two people, that accusation would not even, would normally not even be heard in their court system. So at least two people, and it had to match up. Well, they were bearing false witness against Jesus, and when you have two people trying to lie at the same time, and they're on the same team, it's hard to get those lies to match up, right? I mean, that's like, that's Dateline 101, right? When you're watching Forensic Files, or Dateline, or whatever your, uh, Uh, a crime documentary of choice is when they when they have two people who who have committed a crime and they got together to get their lie just right what do they do when they're interrogating those liars they separate them you put them in two different rooms and then you get them to tell the same story. And it never matches up. When you ask questions about that false testimony, you'll find these differences and you'll be able to figure out that they're not telling the truth. Well, you've got to realize that when these liars were coming on the stand before the Sanhedrin, not every single person in this entire Sanhedrin is out to get Jesus. Some of them are, are inevitably out for tr- just truth it was their job to cross-examine and to ask questions. And so one at a time when they would have these people come up here to bear false testimony, when people would ask them questions, they just couldn't, couldn't quite get it to sync up. So that's the problem they were having, is they had, false tes- they had the testimony that they needed, but because it was false, it couldn't match up and they couldn't get those two witnesses to line up that would be enough, because that's what it would, again, that's what it would take to make it legitimate. So finally, after sorting all through, all through all of these lies, they found at least two we're told this in Matthew that the testimony were given in Mark, but Matthew gives us that little piece of information that at least two people kind of had a, a similar lie, and here's what it was. We heard him say, "I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands." Now you Bible scholars, if you've been paying attention and you've read your Gospels well, you're thinking, those are little liars, that's not what Jesus said at all. I've read these Gospels, I've, I've heard what Jesus was saying. He never claims he was going to destroy the temple. He talks about how the temple will be destroyed one day. He prophesied about it, that's what chapter 13 was all about. He's prophesied about it, he's been talking about how the temple will come crumbling down, there won't be one stone left upon another, but he's prophesying that, that it's going to take place in the future, and it did. And it happened in 70 AD. That's after his death, after his resurrection, obviously. It was destroyed, but Jesus never said he, he was going to destroy it. The closest thing you can find, if you're really combing through the Gospels and combing through everything Jesus said, in John chapter 2, verse 19, after he cleanses the temple, Jesus says this Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. Now, what's Jesus talking about there? Well, he's not talking about the literal temple and we're given the detail if you finish that verse he had spoken of his body we know that several times Jesus prophesied about his death and his resurrection the disciples always had a hard time with it whenever he would mention it to them and so this is one of the ways that he did that destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days he was speaking of his body and John makes it clear when he said it those listening understood oh he was speaking about his body And so these witnesses had twisted and warped what Jesus had taught, his own words. And they were trying to say that his plans were to to, to destroy the literal, physical temple. And he was claiming he would miraculously create a new one in three days. But, Mark tells us, even about this, their testimony did not agree. This is the closest They could get to having two witnesses line up perfectly to have an official charge against Jesus. But even that didn't quite come together. This is what frustrated them. This is why Caiaphas is starting to get more and more frustrated. This isn't working. This isn't playing out the way I want it to. So Caiaphas, he steps in and he's going to intervene to try to expedite this. Look at verses 60 and 61. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this these men are testifying against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So you can tell how impatient Caiaphas is becoming here in this moment. These, oh, we don't have time to mess with these, these things. Tell us about what they're talking about. Answer this, Jesus. Do you have an answer for this? He's like, he's he's Caiaphas in this moment. He's abandoning the whole witness thing, and now he's just trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. And so Jesus here, he pleads the fifth. If that would have been a thing, then, right? He's pleading the fifth. You don't have to incriminate incriminate yourself. It says Jesus. He he says of Jesus, he remained silent, and he made no answer. He, he wasn't going to dignify these lies with a response. He, he I, don't have, I don't have to respond to any of that. All, all of that is lie lies. I don't have to respond to that. I'm not even, even going to dignify that with a response. He just remained silent, gave no answer. And even in that moment, this is how cool scripture is. Prophecy regarding the death and resurrection of Jesus is astounding. You know, we sang about that prophecy here earlier to start our service written 800 years uh, before uh, Jesus uh, entered his creation and lived his life. But all of these prophecies, they get down to, to these really small details. In Isaiah 53, 7 it says, as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth. That fulfills what Isaiah was communicating to, to God's people. And so he, he would not acknowledge the false testimony. He, he wasn't going to even respond to it. And then Caiaphas changes things up. He we say, well, well, Jesus does end up responding. So did he remain silent or not? Well, he remained silent when it came to the false testimony. He wasn't even going to address it. He wasn't even going to defend himself. That's ridiculous. But Caiaphas asks him a very answerable question. Caiaphas this, then says, are you the Christ? the son of the blessed this is something very specific are you claiming to be forget about everything they just said i'm going to ask you a direct question are you claiming to be that anticipated anointed one that's what messiah means that and then christ is the greek word for that that hebrew word messiah are you that christ are you the the son of the blessed, are you the one that we understand will have this special divine father-son relationship uh, to to Yahweh with? I mean, is is that who you're claiming to be? Now, that's something Jesus can respond to and will respond to, and he's going to respond to it very clearly and very defiantly. Listen to what he says in 62 through 65. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of A son of, uh, I'm sorry, I, I lost my place here. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So Jesus' first response is, I am. Now, if we were in John's gospel and we were reading his account, I am plays a big role in his gospel. There's like seven I am statements that you read in, in the gospel of John. And I am, of course, is connecting us back to that famous moment in scripture that everybody would have known of, burning the burning bush when, God, when Moses is talking to God. Who shall I say sent me? I am. And then here Jesus is saying, I am. Well, we could spend a lot of time and dissect that, and if we were in John's gospel, we sure would. But in Mark's gospel, that's not the emphasis. He, he, he responds saying, I am. And when you look at it up against what's, what his response is in Matthew and Luke, I think we get a, a special response that we're, we're meant to see something different here when we combine these three. In, in Matthew and Luke, here's his response. You have said so. So his response in this moment, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? His response is twofold. You have said so, I am. Or maybe it's, I am, you've said so. We're given this combination of response. And here's here's the reason, I think, why we get this I am and you have said so response from Jesus. It's because He he has to say, yes, I am that Christ. But at the same time, he understands the Christ he is and the Christ they expect this Messiah to be are two different things. So, yes, I am this Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah uh, that you think I am because you misunderstand this Messiah ultimately. And so this is why Jesus responds in such a way to clear that up. I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, yeah, I'm the Messiah, but here's what you don't understand about the Messiah. You're merely hoping that this Messiah will show up and deliver you from the oppression of Rome. That's that's what you think your biggest problem is. That's merely what you think this Messiah has come to do. But I am the Messiah that's come to judge everyone, including you. I am the judge that sits at the right hand of power, the right right hand of God. I mean, this is too much to bear for Caiaphas. Because, right, Caiaphas thinks he's in control. This is my courtroom. I'm the high priest. I'm the judge over you. I'm determining you are wrong. You're not the judge over me. Caiaphas can't even stand what he's hearing right now to the point in which he tears his robe. He, He goes, Hog Hogan on the robe, on, a, on the judge robe, right? And, and when we're reading that in the moment, we think that it's like the spontaneous, like, I just can't stand this, Wow. like he's ripping his, his robe apart. Actually, this was a formal judicial act. When you look into the, again, the commentaries, I love to do the homework and share what I, what I find with you guys. This was a, a, a judicial act. Whenever you had the charge of blasphemy, what a judge, what you would expect the judge to do is to rip his robe and that was the signal that this is officially the conclusion that I've come to. This is blasphemy. So that for that one particular charge, you would rip your robe. And it was actually sewn together in such a way that it would make it easier to rip. So in case mom sewed that too tight and you couldn't do it and your little wimpy arms couldn't rip that apart like the Hulk, then you know it would be sewn together because it was made to rip. So you could really look strong in that moment. Yeah! it was rigged and that's what he did and then it would be sewn up in a way so it could be torn again in the future in case there was ever another charge of blasphemy that's how that worked so Caiaphas he's doing everything he can in this moment to express disgust and to to bring the Sanhedrin to a to an official conclusion this is blasphemy I have said so it is official there's no reason to go any further. That's what he says. What further witnesses do we need? I've torn my robe. It's it. That's all we need. He's incriminated himself. And so they all condemned him and, and, and concluded that he was deserving of death. This is when the mocking began. Some began to spit on him. Is there anything more demeaning than being spit on? Of course, even this detail fulfills scripture. You can read back in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, and it'll describe to you a Messiah who will be spit on and mocked. Jesus is fulfilling every single little moment. They take it further than that. They blindfold Jesus, and they're they're striking him. There's a group of men around him taking turns, uh, striking him in the face. What do they yell at him? They say, prophesy! They blindfold him to hit him and say, prophesy! As in, hey, if you know everything, tell us which one of us is hitting you right now. They're taking turns, punching him in the face, and then saying, hey, tell us, who was that? Which one of us hit you? Prophesy. And of course, don't miss the irony here. Jesus did prophesy that moment. This was prophesied centuries ago by prophets like Isaiah, and Jesus... Of course, told his disciples, this is going to be the case, And so he did literally prophesy the moment that they're telling him to prophesy. It's already happened. So you can just feel the unhinged hatred that they have towards Jesus, just un- unleashing hatred upon him and this physical assault. They want to humiliate him. The Sanhedrin completely rejected Jesus. They put the Son of God on trial. They rejected him. They didn't like who he was. They didn't like how he was doing things, what he was saying. They didn't like his message. So they twisted his words, they paid people to lie about him, they mocked and they beat him, they sat down and they gave him a talking to, right? Because in their eyes they were going to set the record straight. But here's what I really want us to take away. This is this is, again, if if you take away anything, this this is the most important thing. All of that hatred towards Jesus, all of that twisting, all of that cruelty, did any of it change Jesus? Did it change him? No, he stayed the course the entire time. He was completely obedient. He was right where he he was supposed to be and he knew that, he was unwavering in that, unwavering in his mission, unwavering in drinking the cup that the father had given the son to drink. What What a profound truth that is, that with all that pressure and all that hatred, Jesus stays the course. With all of that ignorance, Jesus tolerates it and stays the course. You know, in our, in our utter ignorance, when we attempt to put God on trial in these subtle, small ways, maybe we, we like to think that they're really insignificant and, and, well, it's not that bad. But every time that we get in this frame of mind in which we think we can deem any of his actions as wrong, any time we get in the frame of mind in which we think it's okay to assume we know better or that we can question who he is based on something not going right in our lives, thinking that we can straighten him out and inform him of how things need to be fixed. When we act like that, and you know we do, we're like the Sanhedrin. Anytime you're reading in in the Gospels and you identify a villain and then you identify Jesus, you know, we always resemble the villain more than we resemble Jesus, it's shamefully so. We're more like them, And, and I'm so thankful that when we act like that towards God, he stays the course. He's perfectly obedient. He, he endures it all. He endures all of our ignorance. He tolerates our, our, our stupidity at times. We waver and doubt, and we're all over the place, say things we shouldn't. He's always perfect. And that's what results in our salvation. He is perfectly faithful to us, perfectly obedient in his life. And that's what saves our souls from the wrath of that we deserve, that's what we gather together and study these moments so that we can think about. He's the hero, he's the hero, he's the one who was perfectly faithful, not us. So we put our faith in him. So thankful that when we get in those, frame of mind, those frames of mind, regardless of, of how explicit we are, that he, he loves us. And he's given us this gospel to draw us and woo us back to him that we can be, even have a chance at obedience. So let's remember these truths and, and, and go with the heart of gratitude that Jesus is unwavering in his effort to save our souls. Let's pray. Lord, again, we are so grateful to be studying the gospel of Mark. What a privilege it is. What a time to examine our own hearts and minds and, and how we think about you. It's so often the case, Lord, that we become overconfident and begin to think that we can judge you on some level. It's ridiculous. Father, we thank you for your word that corrects us and that puts us in our place, that we can understand who you are and who we are in relationship to you. Lord, that we can have this relationship with you in the way that you designed and Lord, most of all, we thank you for the obedience of your son, Jesus. That Lord, you, you, ha- you have forgiven us. We don't deserve it, but you've forgiven us. Or you, you, uh, you pursue us and love us and take care of us. And, and, and you're always there with us as, as we waver and doubt and struggle and go up and down. You're, you're the same. You don't change. Father, thank you for that. So help us to remember those truths in communion today that when we think about our salvation, we would find the assurance that is there that this is this isn't hope in me and how I can perform and what I can do. This isn't about me correcting you. Lord, it's it's scary to even say that out loud. This is about you who have who has done what it takes to save us. This is about you and your perfection and your design. So Lord, we want to bring you glory and help us to find that assurance and that salvation and that hope today through your son. In Jesus' name, we pray.